0: Hey folks, you are listening to Screen Watching. This is our weekly deep dive into the things what we've been watching. My name's Dan, joined here by Simon Foster. Simon Foster, got a question for you. I don't know if this is a bit personal. Uh, we're going to be talking about um, homemade pornography in just a short while. Yeah, I uh, noticed that you didn't bad night of that. That's all cool. Uh, we're not really talking about our own sort of efforts, which I'm sure that the library I can see behind you is filled with disc after disc. But uh, Pam and Tommy Lee, did you ever see it?
1: Oh yes, absolutely I saw it I come from a vintage that uh, was um, It was quite the big deal back in the day You can forget your Baywatches and your Motley Crew. That's what those two were famous for So yeah, yeah, I saw it In fact, it probably is back there somewhere, come to think of it You pervert <laughs> This
0: is not like TV only battle
1: Television! Teacher! Mother!
0: Secret lover What, that's it? That's your movie? Well, I said that I had an idea for a movie Folks, this is Screen Watching. We talk about the movies and the TV shows, and we do that to each other. I'm Dan. I'm joined here by Simon Foster. Such a thrill to be here,
1: Dan Barrett. Good to see you, my friend. Um, I've had a very busy week. The uh, DVD, the physical media bookcase you see back there, um, is now in alphabetical order. So if at any point you want to zoom in on those, um, I've cleaned up the DVDs and I've alphabetized the Blu-rays. So I've had a very fulfilling couple of days.
0: Okay. Don't forget that deep throat begins with a D. (laughs) Yeah,
1: yes, it does. It's in there, and I don't have the Pam and Tommy one. I had a very scratchy old VHS copy of that back in the day, and it really did do the rounds. It was everywhere. So um,
0: the way that the the series handles it is is uh, an interesting way. Okay. Look, we'll get into that in a moment. But yeah, we have mentioned this week on the show we're talking about Pam and Tommy, which is the brand new. Uh, quasi-biography series of sorts playing at the moment on Disney Plus here in Australia and we'll talk about how weird that is in a moment I'll also be talking about the Apple TV show called Suspicion Simon, uh, Simon, what have you got on the ballot? Okay, well I'm headed to Outer
1: Space for Moonfall the new film from Roland Emmerich and I'm headed to Belfast for um, Belfast the new film from Kenneth Branagh which is in cinemas next week we're getting a bit of a head start on things
0: because it's a very busy day next week so yeah, lots to talk about Yeah, now I do have construction happening right next door, so hopefully it's not being picked up in the microphone and we can dive straight into some reviews. It stinks. Now, quietly, Simon, if there's some jackhammering happening outside of my window, it's probably the perfect accompaniment for me talking about Pam and Tommy. Here we go. Let's dive in. It was huge tabloid fodder in the ni- mid nineteen nineties that seemed part freak show, part celebration of the excess of the nineties. Bad boy Motley Crew drummer Tommy Lee he married Baywatch star Pamela Anderson. Now look, Motley Crue, they were past their time by—they were past their prime by the time that the two hooked up. Their glam metal was no longer in fashion, having been replaced uh, by the audience uh, who were hungering for grunge and the rise of the alt music scene of the early nineties. Meanwhile, Pamela Anderson had quite the different trajectory, she was on the rise, she was a huge deal at the time, she was the large-breasted playboy model turned actor, and she was unquestionably the reason that the lukewarm beach rescue show Baywatch suddenly became the world's most watched show. And it wasn't that she was talented, but she had a screen capturing a sense of her kind of sweet girl next door mixed in with every bit the sexed-up fantasy of a crass 14-year-old teenage boy, She's quite the unique presence. And so you've got this marriage, which is quite literally the union of sex and rock and roll. So when a sex tape leaks of the two, it wasn't seen as scandalous at the time. Instead, it just kind of felt like a natural extension of the narrative that surrounded them and their relationship as seen through the trashy weekly gossip mags on a weekly basis. Now, these are big, colorful characters with a provocative story, but is that necessarily enough to sustain an eight-episode serialized drama? Three episodes into said serialized drama, I'm not sure I have the answer to it. But I do know that the show has my wife and I transfixed by the screen, and we've been transcri- there, 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 transfixed for the last three nights in a row as we've been watching the brand new Hulu drama, Pam and Tommy. And as a Hulu drama in the US, Disney Plus here. So the show, it's initially seen from the perspective of a guy named Rand Gaultier. He's an electrician who's on the edge of financial ruin after Tommy Lee refuses to pay for some costly work done at his house. Angered by the experience, he breaks into the home of Lee and Anderson and comes away with the infamous tape of them. Using his connections in the sleazy porn industry, as opposed to the upmarket classy porn industry, he's an early internet pioneer and he sells tapes of the recording online. Rand is portrayed in the series by Seth Rogen, great casting, and just as a bit of interesting trivia about Rand, and I don't know if you're across this, Simon, his father was former Broadway actor Dick Gaultier, who's best known as playing the robot Jaime in the 60s version of Get Smart. I did not know that. And that's why people should be listening to this podcast because we come up with that sort of crap. Indeed. You say crap. I say real trivia. Now, we see other perspectives in the show as well. We've got the relationship between Tommy Lee and Pamela Anderson, and it's actually depicted in the show as really sweet and fun. They're larger-than-life people, but the show grounds them surprisingly well with some really nice moments. There's one scene, particularly in the third episode, where Pamela comes home after a professionally disappointing day on set where she finds that Tommy Lee has cooked up a feast of Greek food to celebrate his heritage with his wife. As they eat and talk, it's sweet hearing Tommy Lee telling his wife about his family, but all the while it kind of highlights the odyssey of the two of them having just gotten married so quickly and not having even met each other's families. And look, it isn't as though the story of Pamela Anderson and Tommy Lee and their sex tape needed to be told, but how many stories actually ever need to be told, particularly personal biographical ones? Instead, what we've got here is a mu- morally dubious incident that's captured on screen. You've got director Craig Gillespie, who brings a similar approach to this, as he did with I, Tonya, with a grounded verging on documentary styles of the filmmaking. Only here it's filmed with the same glossy sheen that would not have felt out of place on TV in the 1990s. What does feel out of place, though, is watching the show on Disney+, Plus, where it's streaming outside of the US. This is a show that does not shy away from copious amounts of graphic sex on screen. There's an excessive excessive and extensive sex montage in the second episode that really goes for it. There's an oddball scene with Tommy Lee in an extended conversation with his penis that has the same anthropomorphized qualities that one expects from a Pixar movie. The show is wild. Uh, it's got co-showrunners D V and I'm gonna butcher his name. Let me let me try to do this. D V De Vincent De Vincentis De, Oh my god. I just have to say the name Vincent is Vincent Tice? D.V. DeVincentis, there we go, we'll go with that, and Robert Siegel, uh, who hold the show together. Now, DeVincentis, you may know as the screenwriter for films like High Fidelity and Gross Point Blank, Uh, he also wrote several episodes of American Crime Story, The People vs. O.J. Simpson, and suddenly that starts to make a lot of sense when you consider the show. Now, meanwhile, you've got Siegel, who's the writer of films like The Wrestler and The Founder, And neither is a stranger to this sort of uh, biography work. The two are surprisingly deft at finding a humanity in a show that seemingly has a flimsy sense of value to begin with it. Now, Pam and Tommy, it's not high art, but it's far smarter and savvier than it seems at the outset. As an audience, we're always complicit of rubbernecking when it comes to watching biography movies. Even the loftiest of productions have us staring in and reveling generally at the misfortunes and tragedies of other people's lives. Only here we're asked to stare into the lives of two people who the audience simply doesn't have a lot of sympathy for from the outset. Mixing the crudity of the sex depicted on screen, along with the ick factor of the home porn video industry, and it'll leave some viewers feeling uncomfortable about spending time with the story. And that seems very much to be the point. Yeah, I think you're exactly right. I'm 100% on board with your review,
1: mate. Um, this was a show, as you pointed out, um, I do... I am of an age that, that that does recall exactly what headline fodder um, these two were in in an era when um, uh, homemade porn and and uh, and and uh, celebrity tapes were were the standard things like the Rob Lowe tape that led to the Chloe Kardashian tape and all those sort of things. So this is a a look at people who we only know as headline grabbing. Um, caricatures of themselves, and all it really had to do was create them as real people. Um, and Craig Gillespie, um, Sebastian Stan, who's terrific as Tommy Lee, um, the extraordinary Lily James, who I just and Jason Mendoza
0: as the penis,
1: yeah, and, and the penis, yes, um, and of course Seth Rogen, who I realised I hadn't seen on screen for a while in this part, he's terrific. So. All, all the elements of this came together. All that talent that you just rattled off, um, the script writer of Founder and, and um, all these great movies that I've seen over the past 10 years, they all seem to be coming together in just the right kind of way for Pam and Tommy. Um, but you are absolutely right about how strange it is to see this attached to the Disney moniker. Um, when this came up on the, the Disney um disney plus sort of top banner on the on the screen i just rolled my head and um and, and just couldn't believe what i was seeing because it's it's such a strange connection and i'm sure there's some adult context content amongst the the movies on the star drop down there on, on disney plus the the more adult um uh, strand but boy nothing like this this has some pretty hardcore stuff
0: in it Look, I mean that's kind of what's so weird about it. So there are adult movies, not like graphic adult movies, but you know just films for adults yep. in the Star brand. And like it's kind of fine. Like it feels a bit weird seeing Fight Club sitting in there and coming up on the screen alongside some of these things. But it was kind of weird getting a push notification during the week from Disney saying, "Hey, check out Pam and Tommy R eighteen plus" as a big selling point, which it is. Yeah, R eighteen plus. Watch it on Disney Plus. And it yep. seems weird they're not saying watch it on Star on Disney Plus or something like that. Like. You and I find it hard talking about things on Star because it's like, how do you verbally explain what it is? The Star Channel on Disney Plus, it's never really been clearly sort of identified as the best way to categorize that as a concept. Mm. But it's just weird saying that this show is a Disney Plus original.
1: I, I Look, for me, it's another success for Gillespie. You know I'm a huge Craig Gillespie fan. I love I, um, I, 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 You and I differ on physical, but I love physical. Um, and uh, I don't blame him for the kind of mess that Cruella became, but he got a big hit out of it. So I'm I'm always on board for anything Gillespie does. So this is a, another success for him and definitely well worth a look.
0: Yeah, so something I do want to leave people with is my understanding of it. I've only seen the first three episodes, which are the ones that are available now streaming. My understanding is that the show, while it's very crass at the beginning and takes on a very sort of tabloidy sort of a sheen to it all, as the series goes on, it becomes a little bit like, uh, actually, I was going to say we discussed this on the podcast, but we didn't. It was on my previous podcast for this one. Uh, I did a review of A Teacher which was, there was a movie of it in like 2012-ish, but the writer-director of that film came back to do a TV series version of it, which was made for Hulu also. But what's interesting about that is that it takes you from the point of watching this story about a teacher who ends up sleeping with a 15, 16-year-old student and you, you as a viewer kind of become complicit in it because the way it's depicted on screen is that it's kind of a little bit hot. And so as you're watching it, you're like, okay, well, this is, you know, slightly titillating, I guess, to a certain degree. But then the narrative switches quite a few episodes in, mm. and you suddenly start seeing the damage that this has really caused. The director of that, whose name is Escape Me right now, uh, the writer director, rather, she's actually on board to direct an episode or Who Are This later in the season. So it's interesting to see that I've got figures like her, because my understanding of this show is that it takes a very similar turn, where you as a viewer are complicit in the sort of scandalous sort of you know, fun aspects of the show. But as you start to see the actual damage that it took on Pamela Anderson, like then it becomes a little bit more real. And so that's where the real twist of the knife comes in. Pam and Tommy is on uh, Disney
1: Plus, the Star Strand, as we speak, and on Hulu for our uh, our international listeners. Um, I'm going to duck on over to the other side of the sun, other side of the moon even, to
0: review the movie Moonfall. You know what we didn't do, Simon? We didn't play a clip of Pam and Tommy earlier. You're absolutely right. We didn't. Why didn't we do that? Let's do that. Can we because, not gonna do that now? Because we're amateurs. How about we play a clip of Pam and Time? People can hear a little bit of what that sounds like. <laughs> and then we're off to the moon. Please
2: welcome Pamela Anderson.
1: Did you know anything at all about Mr. Lee before you met him?
2: I knew he was the drummer for Motley Cruz. Did you find him attractive? I like to smile.
0: Yeah. So that's what people are up for. Simon Foster, one day we'll get better at this. <laughs> Because, okay, quietly, just explaining what's going on here. The last couple of weeks, and we should explain this because the audio quality, I don't think has really been as good as ideally I'd like. Uh, We've had about three weeks now of just um, garbage recording sessions. Part of it was because I was traveling interstate and literally had no equipment with me whatsoever. So I had some MacGyver things together. I had... Bubble gum, I had clothes hangers. I was doing all sorts of stuff to make an editing of this podcast work. And considering what I had to work with, pretty impressive. What you listen to, not so much. Then last week we thought, let's do a video recording for the first time. And then the audio quality of that, because we were really trusting that we'd be able to upload both an audio and a video file to our various platforms. That wasn't the case. So if you heard last week's quality and thought this is a bit subpar apologies that's kind of what happened there and now here we are trying to do this live to tape and i don't even know how to press buttons these these this is
1: the the birthing pains i think they call it something your (laughs) household will be very familiar with given recent events but this is a this is we're just trying to change things up make it a bit different i think a video cast is is working well we had some great feedback thank you to all the people who um got back to us and said that maybe simon was a little bit underprepared to see his own reflection while saying things because my my first review last week wasn't exactly premium podcasting Um, we've changed all that we're going to make it work this week thank you for your patience i'm going to talk about moonfall play the
2: clip i've made a shocking discovery i need you to get me in touch with nasa immediately well nasa and i aren't really on speaking terms these days well that'll
0: change it's a short one, Simon. It is we a short go. one.
1: <laughs> just when you think you know all there is to know about the moon and that it is a big, cold, dead rock just floating around up there so that surfers have something to do, along comes directly. Sounds like Rol- my ex-girlfriend. Go on. <laughs> along comes director Roland Emmerich to blow your mind in his latest Earth-destroying romp Moonfall. The moon is revealed to be a megastructure holding both the secrets of humankind's origins and an evil entity that wants to turn us and our planet into deep space particles. Like Thanos in the Avengers movies and Rami Malek in No Time to Die, flicking the reset switch on Earth isn't a disagreeable principle and while there are days when I don't have a problem with that per se there are movies and movie heroes and heroines who need to be seen to step up in these moments. Here they are played by Oscar winner Halle Berry as NASA boss Jacinda Fowle. What a great name. Oscar hopeful, though not for this film, Patrick Wilson as disgraced astronaut Bryce Harper and chubby nerd John Bradley as chubby nerd Casey Houseman, an amateur astrophysicist who notices before any space agency in the world that the moon has shifted its orbit. The plot convolutes such that it is these three unlikely compadres that must head way north and right the lunar wrong in the most special effects way possible. Now, apart from 2012, which was stupid and terrible beyond forgiveness, I'm a sucker for Emmerich Spectacle. His films guarantee audiences at least half a good film. Stargate, Independence Day, Godzilla, The Day After Tomorrow, 10,000 BC, they all hurtled towards... A spectacular midpoint before succumbing to, in varying degrees to their overall dopeness. His last few films, and I include White House Down, the Independence Day sequel Resurgence and the war movie Midway, suggest that after 40 years of movie making he's learnt how to round out the third act of his stories. And Moonfall backs that up, providing the best kind of Emmerich-centric storytelling. Preposterous science, screechingly silly dialogue, utter indifference to a global death toll in the millions as long as his stars and their families are okay. With a vision of space and the lunar interior that is a triumph of CGI wizardry, he keeps it all afloat with a deft touch, never settling on one ridiculous beat before face-slapping you with another one, until it is just easier to stop resisting the urge to critique his films and just go along for the ride. And that's what Moonfall is, just a big
0: spectacular dumb ride, and I was okay for it. I really enjoyed the film. So here's the thing. I've really done a lot of soul searching before I really came to this conclusion. Yeah. I kind of think that Roland Emmerich sucks. (laughs) Like really. (laughs) He's done two good movies, two movies that I find to be watchable. And like even saying good movies is really a bit of a reach. Yeah. Uh, So Independence Day, I have very dear to my heart. Sure. I really like that movie. Okay. It's not a good movie, but there's certainly elements of that movie that resonate with me very strongly. Mm -hmm. White House Down, I think, is a cracking fun time. It is. Agree. Outside of that, it is a dog's breakfast of movies where I would never even consider re-watching like a single one of them. I just think that that's terrible. And so Roland Emmerich, as I saw the trailer for Moonfall, I thought I'm kind of half interested in this because it looks so ludicrously bad. But legitimately, when I realized that it was an Emmerich joint, I just tapped out entirely. Um, he has certainly carved out a niche for himself
1: as this generation's Ronald Neim. Now, many people don't know who Ronald Neim is. He directed um, the Poseidon adventure and he had a real sort of tacked on way of getting all a lot of big stars together and saying terrible dialogue. The other sort of uh, producer known for doing this was Irwin Allen, of course, who did all those um, disaster movies in the 70s, and, and Emmerich is, is from that class. Um, logic, uh, character, even most times plot don't really matter to Emmerich. If he gets the spectacle right, you're kind of on board for his films. And he has so far. I, I certainly felt the same way about Emmerich as you did in a, after a few of those early films. I've come around on Day After Tomorrow. I've kind of come around on 10,000 BC, which I hated at the <sighs> time. I can't come around on yeah. 2012
0: because it was terrible. Um, but I'm really on board for Moonfall. I think it is criminal likening his work to Poseidon Adventure, which is a cracking fun film. <laughs> I mean, yeah, they're, you, all, they're you, all cut think about from the, the cast same of that cloth. film. I mean, it's unfair. to cast from the same cloth. When you talk about a film that had Hackman, you got Borgnine in there. Red Buttons. Who doesn't love Red Buttons? Oh, we Bit love of Red Buttons.
1: Shelley Winters. Who doesn't love Shelley Absolutely. Winters? She Leslie was the reason. That, she was the reason the boat went over. <laughs> <laughs>
0: there's there's nothing polite I can say there. Oh, However, right. you know, cracking fun film, and I will watch Poseidon Adventure, like. With that no hesitation whatsoever. If I see a second of that on the television, I'm there for the entire two hours. Are you see
1: now I I fall into a very different camp. I'm far more Towering Inferno than I ever was Poseidon Adventure. I've seen Towering I've never Inferno. Seen towering many Never seen it. What about Beyond the Poseidon Adventure? There's the question. Oh my goodness, you've never seen that. Wow, that's yeah. Well, Beyond the Poseidon Adventure, Sally Field I think came on board for that one. No pun intended. And if you want to go right to the other end of disaster movies, check out Paul Newman and Jacqueline Bisset in When Time Ran Out, which was the Hawaiian volcano movie. Um, it was the <laughs> yeah. uh, it was the final straw for that genre of filmmaking for many many years. Came out in eight. I want to say eighty-one, maybe, um, and really stunk. Just terrible, horrible film. Um, but a but a blast to watch. Good. What do you call it? Crack, screeching fun as well. So um, that was Moonfall in cinemas. Now let's move on to the new Apple TV series. It's called Suspicion.
2: We can't be certain whether this is terrorist-related, politically motivated, or simple extortion. Young guy Leo Newman gets packed into a suitcase by a masked gang. NYPD flags four suspects. Catherine Newman. I cannot imagine what you're going through at the moment. I love my son,
0: and I want him back. Suspicion opens with the kidnapping of the teenage son of a media mogul by a group wearing masks of the British Royal Family. Police identify suspects who they believe are responsible, a grouping of, I thought it was five people, but the trailer then said four, so I just can't count, uh, four British people who seemingly have no connection to one another, but were all in the same New York hotel where the kidnapping took place. The five or four people set out to clear their name, but are they guilty of the crime? The audience doesn't know, and that's the hook for this Apple TV Plus series. As a streaming platform, Apple TV Plus has been very successful with high quality, visually rich series. Even the shows that didn't quite work seem like very noble failures, so it's surprising to find suspicion streaming on a platform, as it looks and feels exactly like a very generic network TV drama. This could just as easily have come from from NBC in the US or ITV in the UK, it's slightly well-produced TV junk. Now, there was a number of network TV shows that appeared in the US right after Lost proved itself a smash hit, shows with what was known as a mystery box that needed to be opened and solved. This show feels like one of those shows, which all largely lifeless shows that did nothing to get the audience interested and in either the characters or the mystery needing to be solved. The big draw of this show is Uma Thurman, with her very first TV series, but don't be foolness watching this show for her. She's in the show as the mother of the kidnapped boy, playing opposite an investigating agent played by Noah Emmerich but one can't imagine she spent more than a day on set recording her scenes for the entire series. She's barely in the show, and to be frank, if I didn't know that Uma Thurman was in the show, I would have seen her on screen, opened IMDb to find out who that actress is and what I've seen her in before. Apple TV have a great track record for high level prestige, but this is super generic, a little bit lifeless in every possible way, and it's kind of watchable. Simon.
1: Okay, well, I only knew of this as an Uma Thurman vehicle, and I only knew of... Uh, uma thurman's involvement with it thanks to the good people at apple tv plus publicity so yeah this is one that seems to be very low on everybody's rain radar despite um her involvement and and by everything you say suggests that it's um maybe not going to rise above sort of the middling level um generic television so that's a shame it's i wonder what drew her to it maybe it
0: read better on paper than it ended up playing out Oh, look, I mean, honestly, I'm not too sure what would have her to her. It was probably a pretty good payday for a very limited amount of work that she needed to put in. Sure. But this is the thing that kind of really threw me with the show, and uh, I heard about this Uma Thurman TV show, and I got excited. I thought, an Uma Thurman TV show, that's something I'd like to check out, like, what's she doing? Mm. Um, I'd be particularly interested in, you know, I don't want to call her an older actress, but, you know, she's certainly not the bubbly 20-something of whom, you know, that's kind of where she made her bread and butter. Mm-hmm like I'd kind of like to see what that performance is and what show would bring her to television to go and do it but then suddenly no one was talking about this show and it just seems to be released and pushed out and I just figured this has got to be not a great program and I watched it and it's not great like it's not terrible either but it's just as I said it's generic it's a bit lifeless at times there's a couple of interesting character actors through there so and I failed to bring up the IMDB here because I don't think i would talk about the show anywhere near as long as I have so far uh but the guy who played Raj in the big bang theory he's innocent in a dramatic role and he's a bit unrecognizable and like he's got a good presence on screen he puts in a good performance uh there's a couple of other people that are just in similar positions where you kind of know them and they're good but the show you just the material just isn't really there the direction's not up to standard it's the cinematography just kind of looks like every generic procedural that you've seen on tv with a csi or an ncis in the title like it's just not quite there it's called Suspicion.
1: If you still want to have a look at it, it's on Apple TV Plus as we speak. Now, ahead of its release into cinemas next week, one of the big Oscar contenders is Belfast. I had a look at that.
2: Oh, holy God. Mama
1: says if we went across the water, they wouldn't understand the way we talk.
2: If they can't understand you, then they're not listening. You know who you are, don't you? Yeah.
1: Director Kenneth Branagh claims that his latest work is a recollection of moments from his life as a wee lad on the streets of late 60s Belfast. Sectarian conflict is on the rise. Catholic and Protestant rioters are tearing apart the terrace homes and small businesses of the poor working class communities. Barbed wire and curfews and late night patrols are altering the fabric of tight-knit pockets of friends and family. And family is what uh, branner wants you to believe this film is really all about. The Strapping Father, played by Jamie Dornan who heads off to work every week in London to, to, to find a new job. The Stoic Mum, played by the beautiful Outlander star Katrina Balf, who is slowly unravelling as she tries to raise two boys and run a household by herself. And the wise old grandparents played by Kieran Hines and Judy Dench, who are good for a cuppa and some wisdom when called upon. We experience this world through the eyes of an adorable innocent named Buddy, played by Jude Hill, who is going through all the torment one must as a 10-year-old in 1969 Belfast, getting the cute classmate to to notice you, struggling with the, the fire and brimstone message of the local pastor, facing off against Catholic rioters and dealing with a family dynamic that is clearly strained. Now, it's a bit insufferable that Kenneth Branner recalls himself as such a perfectly lovable little boy, but inflated self-perception has never been a problem for Branner, and that bloated sense of one's own worth courses through Belfast, which wants to be a loving ode to family unity in a time of turmoil, but feels more like Branner impressing himself with the most strained camera angle to make his black and white photography look good. This is a 60s set coming-of-age story seen through the lens of a 90s guest gene commercial. I had the same reaction a few years back when everyone was frothing on about Alfonso Cuaron's Roma, another impenetrably arty monochrome quote-unquote masterpiece that also wanted to recall the simple beauty of family love and that ultimately, like Belfast, failed to do so. Branner, like Cuaron, seems less interested in recalling key moments from his working-class upbringing and more obsessed with making sure you never forget his new film. Late in the story, as their world is imploding and they're faced with moving to London, but his parents commandeer a dance hall and belt out a version of Everlasting Love. Now, it's a totally incongruous sequence that reeks of manipulation and undoes the very thin connective tissue of all the drama that went before it, but damn if it doesn't look beautiful. And that's how I'll remember Belfast, not as a dissection of social upheaval as seen through the eyes of a boy whose innocence is dismantling, or a domestic drama about the new wave of immigrants forced from their traditional home, and they're both themes that are hinted at but left unexplored by Branagh. Um No, I'll remember Belfast as a twee collection of Irish cliches and stunningly photographed dirt and bricks
0: Okay, now look, none of that sounds appealing to me but you mentioned a guest jeans commercial and I'm in <laughs> Yes, who'll ever forget Claudia
1: Schiffer in the guest That's what this movie needs I don't know how you could work a German supermodel into 1960s Belfast but it's Kenneth Branagh, he can do it
0: that doesn't sound like too difficult a to thing. Like it seems easier to squeeze her into that than it was to squeeze her into those jeans. Yeah, it's true. Gee, I was disappointed
1: in Belfast and I kept waiting for it to connect with me, and I know that it's very high on all the Oscar ballot sort of um, uh, you know contenders who, who who want to see it win awards. Um, you know, I just I just couldn't get over the fact that it seemed all s- such affectation, such falseness in the name of you know sentimentality.
0: Yeah. Uh, Simon Foster, now those aren't the only movies that are playing in cinemas this week. Uh, there's a couple including an Australian film from the inner, oh, sorry, the outer west of Sydney.
1: Yeah, it's called Here Out West. This is the um, eight Western Sydney writers got together and they've written a, a film that features eight different narratives using the themes of assimilation and racism and connection, um, all of which portray you know, the richness and complexity of, of a modern Australian community. There's not a lot of films about life uh, in our, our western suburbs here in Sydney. Um, head on over to the uh, YouTube channel. I interviewed uh, one of the writers, Bina Patachariya, who's um, a wonderfully entertaining lady to talk to and, um, and her, her interview's up there on our YouTube channel. Also in cinemas this week, now you've got to be a Jackass fan, Dan. Please
0: tell me you're a Jackass fan. So I've got a... I don't want to call it a strange relationship with Jackass, but maybe it's a changed relationship with Jackass. And maybe this is really one of these sort of things of the home video experience versus seeing it in a cinema. I've seen every Jackass movie in the theater, so all three previous films, and I had a great time with all of them. And then I tried watching one of them very recently on a fairly small screen while I was cooking dinner, and boy, did it leave me very cold. So... (laughs) I'm not sure. I think this definitely is one of the very rare occasions where I'm completely on board with the idea you need to see this with an audience to really be able to soak it in properly.
1: Totally agree with you. Jackass Forever is the latest film in the, the Jackass franchise. It's been um, there's a few new faces in there. Johnny Knoxville and Steve O. They've all returned, of course, which is which is great to see. I totally agree. I came to the, the Jackass sort of stunt work through their movies, and I knew it was a big sort of MTV series back in the day, so I went back and watched a few with the early ones and you're right it didn't have the same sort of appeal for me as seeing it on the big screen so um uh it's also in cinemas at the moment i haven't had a chance to see it but i'm gonna
0: go and see it and maybe we'll check in on it next week yeah simon foster i think probably it is time well you know i say probably time it's definitely time for us to move on to the all-hallowed middle bit I'm going to drive this one. So a couple of weeks ago, I reviewed a brand new Disney Plus TV show called The Book of Boba Fett. Mm. When I reviewed it, I think I may have used words like dull, boring, tedious. These are definitely words that I was feeling while watching it. And I have since rewatched those episodes. Opinion hasn't changed. I think the couple of episodes that i had been able to watch by the time that I did the review, like, boy, that show stank. Like, it's not Roland Emmerich stank, but, you know, it's still pretty stanky. (laughs) However, the show has done something really unique in the last two weeks, which is that the show took its premise, it took its cast of characters, and it said bye-bye, and then just completely shifted direction to be two episodes of The Mandalorian. And boy, the show's been entertaining, Simon. It has been such a dramatic improvement. I could not have been more thrilled by the last two hours of that TV program. And to the credit of The Book of Boba Fett episode four of that series where it stopped being about boba fett heading off for a men's retreat sort of you know coming to terms with his inner masculine self while hanging out with sand people like as soon as they ditched that element of it and it was really about him meeting up with the ming na character who i can't think of the character's name it's like sank what is it fennec fennec yeah as soon as like it became fennec centric I think the show was so much more interesting than the show had been for the three previous episodes. But even pushing her aside when they weren't pure Mando, boy, this has been good one. What about you, Simon? Now, I know that you're less forgiving. Well, sorry. You're way more forgiving. Yes. You're a much easier lay as far as this is going.
1: I had not seen the series when your first review, the whole dull and tedious thing, dropped um, a few weeks back. I have now seen all five episodes. I am totally at odds. With your opinion about the first three episodes being dull Did and Did you tedious. watch the
0: sixth episode? What, sorry? There's been six episodes. Have you watched the
1: sixth? Oh, is it all six? Yes, absolutely. Right up yeah. to the the end of the, the, the last one. the um, From the desert comes a stranger, which is a great name for episode. I found those first three <laughs> yeah. episodes very much setting up. A, a sort of like a gangster style story, whereas the the Mandalorian was sort of that 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 uh, weekly western adventure, a kind of man with no name or kung fu type mm. of archetype, where he wanders and creates this relationship with little Gru, um, not Gru, Grogu, uh, Gru's Grogu. Despicable Me, isn't it? Yeah. So the book of Babafad is was more about the the machinations of this of the uh, Tatooine, um, the gangsters and the criminal underworld that 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 the. the, 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 the um, Treacherous hive of scum and villainy that is spoken of in in A New Hope. That's what we explore in Tatooine, and that's why I loved it. This is embracing um, the very first Star Wars film, the uh, Star Wars A New Hope. And opening up all those doors that were just hinted at um, in 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 the series up to now. So the book of Baba Fate takes this character, and, and I love Tim Morrison as the as the lead character, and I love the relationship that he has with Ming Na Wen as Fennec as well. So. Um, those early episodes, yes, they were different from what we've seen so far in, in the Star Wars universe, um, and they're certainly different from what we've seen from the Mandalorian. Um, but they were more complex storytelling. They were more interesting characters. They were um, they set up a world that that was seemed fully fleshed out to me. Whereas, and I enjoyed the Mandalorian, but I think I said at the time that this is kind of week to week sort of you know journey television they walk here they walk there they fight this person they fight that person i just find there's more to the book of boba fett than than um than has maybe been picked up on and 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 we should point out um 145 critics have have rated it on rotten tomatoes and it is at at 85 percent um so it is getting some critical backing uh you know from from the, the critics out there so i just i'm just going to have to you know differ on this one with you, my friend?
0: Well, look, I mean, I can only speak to the anecdote, anecdotal evidence of almost every single person online referring to this as a snooze fest. <laughs> what? It's like not it's, a snooze fest at all. You know, it's really Okay, so just, sorry, addressing what you actually said. All right. I think that if the show had focused on it actually talking about the crime elements of Tatooine and actually being the gangster series that you're purporting it to be, I think I'm completely on board with that. And those segments of the early episodes did work, but way too much screen time every episode, and it was about two-thirds of every episode, was dedicated towards showing flashbacks of him hanging out with Sand People. And none of that was worth watching. None of that was worth my time of spending three episodes watching any of that business and it sort of seemed that as soon as they actually started delving a little bit further into the modern day which is where episode four kind of kicked in that's when the show felt a little bit more lively and actually started working but instead what you've got is a central protagonist who has no real character to speak of he was a very cool costume previously and so this is an opportunity to actually build that character into being something But even now, I don't understand what he's about. I don't understand motivation. I don't understand what drives him as a character. None of that is there. We spent next to no time with him actually engaging any of the crime world elements of it. It seemed as though that was bookending the Sand People storyline. So that isn't really quite there. And as soon as they got rid of the Sand People from the story, and they could actually focus and double down on the crime gangster elements and become a crime gangster show— they jettisoned that entirely to focus back into being a Western and focused entirely on the Mandalorian character who had not been introduced into the series at all up until this point. It seems as though they just brought like disparate scripts from another project sitting around, and I've got some theories on that, and we'll talk about that in a moment. But it seems as though they just brought some scripts from another series and just tacked it onto this because what they had previously was not working as a show. There'd been crossover already. Uh, Boba Fett had been in some
1: Mandalorian episodes, so crossover wasn't a a, a brand-new thing to to the two series. I would point out that the Tusken Raider element. um, As with the Jawa element, as with the Womp Rat element, we finally got to see what a Womp Rat looks like. Um, These are all elements that speak to the fan. This is the same sort of debate I've had with a lot of people about the movie Rogue One. Now, Rogue One is, for me, outside of Empire and A New Hope, the best Star Wars movie because it speaks directly to the building of mythology and building of the legend and building of that initial sort of Star Wars universe. And I
0: think that's where both. And Boba leaning entirely feet falls. to fan service wank, but go for it. Oh, sorry, sorry, what then? <laughs> and leaning entirely to fan service wank, but sure. But, but isn't that what Mandalorian's doing? No, okay. Well, the problem with okay, so looking at the film on its own terms, without bringing to the rest of the Star Wars myth, the problem with Rogue One as a movie is that the entire film is about this troop of um, soldiers that have been brought together to embark on a mission, which is a suicide mission. Okay, so we know from the outset, and we know this because we have heard stories of this crew in uh, which film was it? I've, it was Return of the Jedi. I think they make reference to them. Okay, so we know that there's been failed efforts to be able to do it, and we knew this was going to be a failed mission. Mm. So the entire film needs to be about seeing these characters making the ultimate sacrifice, and that is what happens. But by the time you reach the end of that movie, you don't actually really know who most of those characters are because the film has spat away any opportunities to actually know who any of these characters are. So the entire film is building up to the death of these characters. And when it happens, it's like, well, who cares? Because I don't actually know anything about no, you. No, 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 the no. The no, idea see, of a cool, no, blind no, Jedi. From,
1: from, from, from the perspective, and, and this is a really interesting debate, and I, and I hope it's interesting to people who are watching and listening, but there is a real division between fans that come from a certain... Perspective on, on uh, Star Wars and Empire in Return as the key trilogy and those that maybe come after it. And, and for me, Rogue One was exactly in line um, and director Gareth Edwards has spoken at length about he was... A, a Gareth student, Edwards a scholar, was pushed off the project A student and a scholar of those early films And he has And, and with Rogue One he he created And crafted that and the Rogue One debate can go on uh, At some other point But with, with regards to the book of Boba Fett Um We're speaking of the world of Tatooine, which I know that you said during the week was was, you got some idea of why Luke Skywalker wanted to get off the planet because it was so boring to him. But he also had a very... um, complex and rich personal life there. He had his friends, he had his family, and that all comes out in the book of Boba Fett. That that bond that he and the first film had to the desert planet. Um, What we're seeing now is what we could have indulged with if the if George Lucas's camera had stayed on Tatooine after Han Solo and the Millennium Falcon blew off into outer space. If we'd have seen this world unfolding um it would have looked like the book of Boba Fett. And I think that's why all <laughs> these Simon, elements you're, play play you're missing the right c- into to, to why I love the first Star Wars films.
0: But like this is kind of like you saying, oh, this is the fan fiction version of something. Like I'm actually after like a text which is working as a text on its own. This is the problem with the book of Boba Fett has the exact same textual problem of Rogue One, which is what I was trying to get to before you started going on to fan service wank. Basically, what you've got is the problem where Rogue One as a movie doesn't necessarily hold. And part of the reason for that is that Gareth Edwards, who you mentioned as the auteur behind that, got fired off that project at a certain point where I'm not sure exactly how much of a percentage he needs to have actually lent to be able to give, be given the director credit. But that's a Tony Gilroy movie. and Gareth It's, Tony, it's a Tony Gilroy edit. It. It's a Gareth Edwards directed film. No, no, he came on and directed it, like, for the back end of it. Not as much as Gareth Edwards had, which is why he doesn't have the credit. He was, ta- he
1: was taken out of the film because Gareth Edwards was sticking very closely to the original mythology of Star Wars. And what the Star Wars producers wanted to do was to take the franchise into a, a more modern, a more newer direction, follow more the, the, um, the, the last couple of films.
0: But regardless of all that, it doesn't hold together particularly well as a movie. It gives you fan service moments, which gave people a thrill. Clearly, you were thrilled by seeing Vader at the very end of it, and like that stuff, like that's perfectly fine. But you need the film to actually be able to stand on its own, and that film didn't build up enough characters outside of the central. What was the Felicity Jones character's name? I can't remember. Um, UrsO. Yeah, I think Urso. that's her name. Yep. Yeah, yeah. Like, you got Urso, but then you got these other characters on the side who just weren't given any moments. They weren't really given enough time to actually be Thematic, built up as characters.
1: Thematically, it spoke to the, the um, series more than any other uh, add-on project of the Star Wars Empire had.
0: It had the legacy of, of most, Father. The most has been so father, shitty. That's a pretty... <laughs> hey? Like, most, most of the add-ons have been terrible movies. So, like, saying this is the best of the lot of them is some pretty faint praise. I, I, th- I think it's well and truly
1: probably only second to empire is as the best of any of the star wars films okay well you're clearly drunk but i'm not at all no i think it's it's there is a a huge groundswell of support for the rogue one because it so connects with. i know I, and it's and it's I not, serv- it's not service. it's not fan service if it captures the spirit and if it captures the and if
0: it understands most precisely what those first few films are about see i don't think it does understand what it's about but we're getting away from the actual point of the conversation here because i can clear i can see you're an immovable force on this Mm. and i'm an immovable force because i know that i'm right and you're just terribly wrong (laughs) but what i wanted to get to in terms of this actual conversation talking about the most two recent episodes of book of boba fett where they course corrected and thought you know what Let's not continue with the storyline that we've been telling. Let's entirely just jettison that to go and do something entirely different. Because you can't argue and say they haven't done that, because that's absolutely what they've done. What I think we're watching here, and this is my theory, this, I've got very little to actually support it, but from the various bits of nuggets I can grab onto, I think that I'm right with this, which is that this series was in pre-production, if not into various other states of production by the time that they actually announced it. So at the end of the last season finale of The Mandalorian, we saw a title card coming up saying, this continues on in the Book of Boba Fett. So Mm -hmm. we knew this was going to be the next step of things. So they were kind of locked into it at that point. But what happened between that bit of video right at the end of The Mandalorian and the beginning of The Book of Boba Fett is that you had some behind-the-scenes turmoil take place where a certain star of The Mandalorian had said a couple of... Mm -hmm holocaust related things and so she was removed from all things star wars now as soon as that happened it meant that the tv show that she was set to go off and star in which is this thing called um, rangers of the new republic mm-hmm. i want to say the name of the show so this was an announced tv show that was supposed to be coming suddenly that was canned so what they did uh, there's a quote from kathleen kennedy who's the producer of all things star wars these days and she said that elements of that series would be incorporated into the new season the mandalorian coming but I reckon that they've taken some elements that were supposed to exist in that series and have brought it over to Book of Boba Fett. And these are the two Mandalorian episodes that we've seen because those two are so much more in line with the Rangers of the New Republic idea than they were of the Book of Boba Fett. They take place entirely away from Tatooine, which is where that series is supposed to be taking place, and instead are just layering in other stuff. In fact, one of the characters that I suspect was supposed to be a range of the New Republic series makes an appearance in there, which is the X-Wing pilot played by Mr. Kim from Kim's Convenience. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, it sort of seems though these are range of the New Republic episodes that have just been squeezed in. So what I'm very curious about is I've never seen a TV show which has so blatantly looked at the material that they've already put in a can and said, hey, look, let's get rid of what we're doing entirely and just go in an entirely new direction. And it's one thing to do that. 12 episodes into a 24-episode season or something like this, but this is never going to be more than seven episodes. And to reach episode five and say, well, five and six, let's just do our own thing entirely, and then we'll try to find a way to connect this issue back in episode seven. Like, this is wild. I have not seen a TV production do it.
1: And that all may be true. Uh, We don't know that. Um, Given that they may be using... The unfolding first season of the Book of Boba Fett to correct some issues they had with Gina Carano's and and her sacking from the series, and to keep elements of Rangers of the Republic or whatever it was called alive. Um, maybe that's happened at the expense of the of the uh, the Book of Boba Fett. Um, I'm, I'm certainly not. I, you I'm, say expense. I say benefit too. But sure, I'm I'm not. I'm absolutely not certain that the. Uh, Shift in direction, and and if what you're saying is true, that the introduction of the Mando and these two episodes, which are pri- pr- primarily about him, that may not be at any kind of fan kickback to the the first couple of the first three episodes of Book of Boba Fett. I, I think it may just be something that they had to pivot and react with um, after the Gina Carano controversy. Um, so yeah, that 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 just may be forced upon them, um, and the spin we're putting on. The first three episodes of *Book of Boba Fett* is unfounded. I thought they were perfectly pitched and and um, well played drama that that spoke to you know fans of of, of the series. Sorry, I just fell asleep because I was thinking about that first episode again. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> you should watch it again. Stranger in a Strange Land no, I've, I've is, is, is a great first episode. It, it I've gives watched a, it twice.
0: It, I hated it the first time. I hated it even more the second it time. It gives
1: great backstory to a character that we knew very little about, who we didn't know anything about other than the cool costume, as you say. So to create this full backstory using some of the most iconic figures, figures of the original Star Wars universe, boom, hit, 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 hit. Hashtag <laughs> oh better God. than Mando. There you go.
0: Okay, look, I don't even know how to process this. Simon, right now I can see where the audience are. Yeah.
1: Someone stumbled and into the middle of this podcast and goes, who are these two nerds? What are they going on about? My God. Anyway. Nobody's
0: stumbling into the middle of this podcast.
1: <laughs> anyway, that was, the, that was the screen-watching middle bit. We'll be back with more after this break. You had an interview during the week. You want to tell us about it? I do want to tell you about it. The gentleman's name is Adrian Scarborough. He's the star of Acorn TV's new crime drama, The Chelsea Detective. Um, it's a very cool little British crime series, the kind of which we've seen. It's cut from the cloth of, you know, Midsummer Murders and those sort of things, but it's very much set within the very cool suburb of Chelsea. Um, and Adrian Scarborough is a terrific character actor. He's done work in films such as Gosford Park and Dirty Pretty Things and opposite our own Kate Blanchett in Notes on on a scandal he's been in tv series like gavin and stacy upstairs downstairs and killing eve um a full interview my full interview with him is available over on our youtube channel here's a little bit of a grab of what this uh, this delightful gentleman had to say
2: as as if shooting uh, in central london isn't complicated enough um let's do it in a pandemic yes, um, yes. just to really really complicate things further um but also, the whole uh, chemistry of the two of us uh, happened purely by accident, really, in a sense, because we had to do all of our chemistry reads um, uh, online, on Zoom. Ah. So we're trying to sort of gauge whether there's a twinkle and whether there's something here um, via a computer screen. And obviously, that that can be quite hard. Um, so that that was how we first sort of got together really um and it's really interesting that there is i mean as you can tell from the two of us having this conversation now there's a spark, oh, and, there's, a spark. <laughs> um, there's there's a twinkle and it was exactly like that with sunita she just kind of came onto the screen and you we just kind of went yep that's it that's yeah. it
1: Chelsea Detective. It launches on February 7, uh, which is Monday, I think, as we record this, and new episodes of this four-episode uh, series premiere each Monday on Acorn TV. Check it out. He's a terrific actor. Um, the interview's over on our YouTube channel, and the series Good Fun.
0: At this point of the podcast, we take a look at the week ahead Simon Foster, the thing that's important to keep in mind about this week ahead is the Winter Olympic Games are currently on. Mm-hmm. And when that happens, it means that generally you find a lot of crickets. And I failed to. You know, this is actually a time where I should have had the crickets queue happen. And it just didn't... Whatever. Now I'm just fumbling on my board so I can't even bring it up. Yeah, there you are, guys. There you are. Winter Olympics, it means that there's just no TV shows really being released because people are concerned with people, you know tv executives are they really people i'm not so sure but the tv executives they're like you know what there's a chance that the people will be caught up with the winter olympics therefore let's avoid putting anything really particularly big on that's not entirely the case this week because we have one very big release but looking at the rest of the releases for the week like i think that's pretty true because wait a second there's not a whole lot to see this week But we are going to talk about the big release of the week is happening on Friday next week. So I'm not sure I'll have time to watch it in terms of being able to review it for the podcast. So we'll see how that goes. But there's Inventing Anna, which is the brand new Julia Garner, Anna Chomsky TV show. Uh, This is about a journalist who's investigating a case of Anna Delvey, who's a German heiress who stole the hearts of New York's social social scene and stole their money as well what's especially noteworthy about this is that Shonda Rhimes, the creator of shows like Grey's Anatomy and Bridgerton and a whole bunch of other very successful programs. Scandal is probably a rather big one. This is her return to television. So this is the first show that she's actually running from the ground up. So all eyes are on this one because it's going to be a very big deal for Netflix. So massive premium creator teamed up with a fairly sort of interesting subject matter. You know, this is going to be the show that everyone's talking about next weekend. But Simon, there's a couple of other things dropping through the week. What have we got?
1: Uh some interesting movies happening through the week. Uh, I want. Oh, well, you... let's talk about TV shows because
0: we're. Oh, the TV, TV show, show,
1: sure. Yeah, uh, the girl before the is on binge from February ten. This tells the story of Jane, uh, played by the wonderful Gugu Mbatha-Raw. She gets the chance to move into a lovely house designed by a, a very sort of charming architect, played by. Excuse me, David Oyelowo. Um, there's just one catch: the occupants must abide by his list of very exacting rules. This has got a great trailer for it. I'm looking forward to seeing the girl before um, some other ones. And that one's think, a four
0: episode. That one's a four episode series, and I think it debuted. I want to say it's a BBC series from yes, late yet. last year.
1: Yeah, some interesting
0: uh, power book four Force. apparently
1: the power book series have been very popular um it premieres on stan uh on february 6th and something called faster than fear which i was really interested by when i cut and paste that in there and now i can't remember what it's about um season one premieres february 9th
0: on stan let us know what faster than fear is if it's worth watching also i can tell you that it's actually not the power book franchise the franchise is power Right. And after the first series, they had a number of follow up seasons. So the spin off shows, the second one was is Power, and then it's Book Two. Ah. It's just for some reason, they don't know how colons work. With the <laughs> franchise here—it's very so. Frustrating. This
1: this would be the sort of stuff we cut out if we weren't doing a video cast. We'd be able to edit this and make it sound a whole lot smarter. But hey, just not now. There's some movies oh. debuting on streaming in the week ahead. I Want You Back is on Amazon Prime. Uh, this is a comedy about two newly dumped thirty somethings who team up to sabotage their exes' new relationships. This stars two very funny people, Charlie Day and Jenny Slate. Uh, on uh, Netflix is a movie called Big Bug. Uh, I'm very excited about this. It's directed by Jean-Pierre Junot, who has, under to his name, uh, Amelie, Delicatessen, City of Lost Children, some of the great sort of French fantasy films of years gone by. This is about a, a group of bickering suburbanites who find themselves at the mercy of their own household robots um, who have to protect them. Uh, in the middle of a robot uprising. And over on Shudder, uh, one of my favourite streaming platforms, the horror platform, a terrific film called All the Moons, which is about a little girl who believes her rescuer is an angel but discovers that this strange being has given her the gift of eternal life, turning her into a vampire. I saw All the Moons when it was doing the festival rounds last year, and it is a very creepy, very, uh, very cool show.
0: Yeah, look, I'm super keen on checking out Big Bug, which premieres on the 11th of February, so... That's definitely going to be the one to watch, I think. Lots to There's a couple of special events as well
1: Yeah, just want to let all our Sydney listeners know That the Antenna Documentary Film Festival Is on right now February 2 through to 13 It runs at a lot of venues around Sydney Dendy Newtown, the MCA A couple of Palace Cinemas The Powerhouse Museum is having some screenings Um, It's got two great documentaries All Light Everywhere Which is a study of what ties together All the technology that watches us um, every day The cameras, the policing, the surveillance um, And it's a, a frightening documentary but it's a a terrific watch and Jagged uh, which we got to see that was a look at the life and influence of Alanis Morissette lots of great shorts too as part of the Antenna Documentary Film Festival.
0: Now at a certain point in the podcast we'd like to take a look at this week in history and there's a couple of historical notes to take place here on February 6, 1921 the kid which starred one charlie chaplin and jackie coogan that was released yes on february
1: 1994 who'll ever forget the day that jack nicholson took to a car with a golf club it made headlines all over the world and pointed out what a complete nut job jack nicholson
0: really is Uh, On February 9, 1964, we had the first appearance of the Beatles on The Ed Sullivan Show. Apparently 73.7 million TV viewers tuned in and saw those hippies with the long hair.
1: That is crazy. And on February 9, 1997, all those years ago, The Simpsons aired its 167th episode, making it the longest running animated series in cartoon history. That was way back in 97, and they're still going, quote unquote, strong.
0: Uh, Do you know which episode that was?
1: no (laughs) (laughs) I don't I really should have looked
0: hey we've got a birthday Uh, sting well sorry I thought you were going to point out that it's the itchy and scratchy and poochy show
1: oh I do recall that one with fondness it was very funny and they're still funny the Simpsons there's so much blah 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 about how they're not what they used to be god they've been running for like 2000 years so they're still putting it together pretty well
0: I know, and it's been unwatchable since about
1: 1998. <laughs> Don't say that it hasn't been. They're doing all right. Hey, let's put my birthday sting in
0: there.
2: No, not happy birthday. No, not that. Please, no, not happy birthday.
0: Couple of birthdays to take note: February 7, 1960. We got one. James Spader, star of Pretty in Pink, Mannequin, Secretary, and The Office. Oh,
1: I love Secretary. What a great movie that <laughs> was. February 8th, 1921, the beautiful Lana Turner, star of Imitation of Life, The Postman Always Rings Twice, and Peyton Place. She was one of the great beauties and one of the great actresses of the golden years of Hollywood. She passed away in 95, but she was born February 8th,
0: 1921. And February 8th, 1930s, who the stunningly beautiful John Williams was born. He was yeah, very good looking man. Uh, You may have heard his music on Jaws, Star Wars, Harry Potter, Indiana Jones, E.T., The Extraterrestrial, and two or three other films you may have heard of.
1: Exactly right. And oddly, one of the other great Hollywood composers of all time, Mr. Jerry Goldsmith, God rest him, he died in 2004. He was born on February 10, 1929. He wrote Planet of the Apes. He wrote the Poltergeist theme. He wrote uh, the themes for the Twilight Zone movie. He's one of the great composers. So, two of Hollywood's great musical minds born within a bull's roar of each other.
0: I mean, two days and three years difference, but sure. Close. Tight. That's the end of the show. (laughs) <laughs> finally folks you have been listening to screen watching i didn't say finally out loud did i my name is dan barrett you can find me on twitter that's at the dan barrett you can start your day with my free newsletter it's called always be watching you can find that one at alwaysbewatching.com it's got the big stories in tv streaming and film and on fridays you've got the always be streaming newsletter which recounts the big shows that launched that very week
1: I'm on the Twitter at Simon R. One. You can read my words over at screen spacenet dot net. I reviewed the new Alicia Silverstone shark movie, The, Qu- the Requiem, this week, and it was terrible. <laughs> Why? <laughs> that was awful. Visit the Screen Watching Facebook page at Screen Watching Podcast. Check out the Screen Watching YouTube channel where you can see my interview with Bina Bhattacharya and with Adrian Scarborough. And do join me on all the Rogue One and Book of Boba Fett forums that I'm passed off. Just search and you'll see my name come up. Um, I'm all over the internet um, spruking support for those two fine bits of entertainment. Dan?
0: Yeah, Uh, you can follow screen watching I mean, the podcast. Like if you're interested, you may have heard some statements like The Simpsons has been any good for about 20 years now. Uh, And if that hasn't turned you off, hit the follow button, hit subscribe, whatever your podcast app does. You know that through your favorite podcast app and the ones that you don't like that much either and load it up and you'll get the podcast each and every week. Good talking to you, my friend. It's
1: been a busy, busy podcast day. We'll be back next week with a whole bunch of... oh, we're reviewing
0: Benedetta next week, the new Paul Verhoeven film. Wait till you see that. Wow. I literally have nothing to review next week if I don't get to see Inventing Anna. So I'm going to come up with something. Oh. What it'll be? I don't know. We'll find out. It's going to be amazing. <laughs> All right, mate. Bye-bye. Bye,
2: everyone. See you, guys.